Hello, I'm Annabelle Lee, and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Claire Wicks, who is the principal flautist with the Orchestra of the English National Opera. She's also recently developed a career as a media composer, alongside her flute playing. I was pleased to meet Claire back in October at the Royal Opera House, a few hours before she had a performance of Tosca at the Coliseum that very same evening. We talked about her musical journey, her training at both university and conservatoire, experiences of playing in the orchestra with the English National Opera, including a particularly memorable performance on the stage of the Coliseum and her compositional activities. This podcast was recorded before the formal announcement at the start of November with regards to the English National Opera's funding cuts from the Arts Council and their possible relocation to somewhere else in the country. So my thoughts are with all of the musicians and the many staff who are part of the English National Opera at what must be a very difficult time for the company. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your musical journey growing up? So I suppose my musical journey probably began with the recorder. It was one of those things, the whole class is learning recorder, you know. But really, my main ambition was always just to try and be as good at it as my older sister was. Uh, she was two years older, so at that point, there's quite a big gap between you. You know, and, um, and I was so determined that um, my mum had to bring in a rule that we weren't allowed to practice um, before 7am, because I was just relentless with this recorder. So I think I kind of got into it that early, and that just gradually evolved you know, as soon as you actually kind of start to get quite good at something, then it becomes more and more fun. So in a way, I sort of skipped those early stages of toiling over the first few notes because I just absolutely relentlessly practiced to try and catch up with my sister. And she never lets me forget, she's not a musician now, but um, she never lets me forget that she was always the better recorder player. Yes, I moved on to the flute and I... I mean, I was at a state comprehensive school in Croydon. Not the best school in the world, has now been shut down by Ofsted. But I was just so lucky that there was this sensational flute teacher there. So I'd actually started off in primary school um, being taught by a bassoonist, for which reason I think it took me absolutely years to correct some of the incorrect fingerings that she'd taught me. Um, But then when I went to secondary school, there was a sensational teacher, Carolyn Kelly, there, who had a whole group of really, really brilliant flautists. And it's just one of those things where it so, it so depends on who's around you. And she ran a group called the Croydon Flute Harmonic, um, which was a giant flute choir, basically. And so I started going to that when I was probably 11, uh, maybe even 10, and just hearing these diploma-level players. And they were, you know, they were only 13 and 14. And it just made me think, oh, well, I could do that as well. I, it was just so inspiring hearing people who were just whizzing around the instrument, you know, and even when I was sort of only doing grade five or six or something, I just thought, wow, I could get really good at this if I tried and, you know, and be able to play with them. There was like an advanced group there as well. I just remember that very first rehearsal going and hearing someone playing Bedinnery, probably a um, very historically inaccurate performance, <laughs> but very, very fast and just being like so impressed. So yeah, really looking up to those players and there was just this like culture there of, you know, we all did the music festivals and went and played together and supported each other and um, it was just an amazing kind of situation to be in. It was just down my road in in Croydon. It was kind of completely random that almost everyone there was going to state schools as well and just this one teacher kind of created this whole culture of amazing flute playing 
at that time in Croydon. I'm really, really grateful for that, actually, because I think that kind of accelerated me in a way that I could never have achieved if I was just on my own. And, you know, you, you learn and grow with the people around you, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I stayed there until sixth form. I went to Cheatham's. Learned with Catherine Baker, appropriately, as we are now sitting in the Opera House. Ah, was she? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, she was Halle at the time, so ah, Manchester. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so I went to Cheatham School of Music in Manchester, just yeah. to be clear, just for two years. And um, I actually did my undergrad at Oxford in academic music. Yeah, we were just saying. <laughs> yeah, so I, I felt like I didn't... Essentially, that decision was made for probably the worst possible reasons, in that I didn't have any great aspiration to go to Oxford. I just sort of, it was two things. Firstly, I just wanted to have a proper university experience. And I really felt like going to a conservatoire in London, well, I'd grown up in London. And I just thought, sort of thought, you know, I want to go somewhere different. And secondly, having been to Chets for a couple of years, I just thought, I don't really want to just be around the same people. You know, everyone was going to RCM, Ram, Guildhall, Royal Northern. And I just thought, I'm just going to spend another four years with the exact same people I've spent the last two years with. And so... Actually, it was literally the day before the deadline. I hadn't, you know, you have to sort of write a couple of essays and do exercises. I I hadn't done anything. And I mean, I'd never written an essay before in my entire life, which I just hadn't done any. I I did um, maths and German alongside music for my A-level. So I I just didn't really know what I was doing at all. Just sort of stayed up all night, threw together a couple of essays and did my application and just got it in on time. And uh, I mean, I was a bit more prepared by the time I got to the interview. But yeah, ended up going there and... I was just incredibly lucky whilst I was there. I'd had some, because I also had a place at the Royal Academy, um, because of course I wasn't sure if I was going to get my grades for Oxford and the music conservatoire offers are usually substantially lower grades required. So I had a a place there, but I knew I wanted to go to Oxford once I had been off to a spot. But I'd had some sort of consultancy lessons with Michael Cox and I just... You know, I I knew he was a brilliant teacher, but after having these lessons, I just thought, I have to learn with him. And so kind of just asked him whether he would possibly consider taking me on as a student, even if I didn't go to academy. And he said to me that he would, as long as I made a real commitment to it. And so I didn't, you know, didn't flinch at that. Yeah, absolutely. And did stick to that, really. So the whole time through my academic degree, I kind of did it knowing that ultimately I wanted to be a flautist. So... I had an immense amount of focus on the flute whilst I was there and playing in all the orchestras and everything. I mean, there's such amazing opportunities there because, you know, you you can just play in everything. Yeah, there's like a concert going on every day, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And chamber music and chamber orchestras and operas and, you know, anything you want. So I was doing that and I was commuting to London for my lessons. And, um, I mean, Michael was brilliant. He would often um, fit me in before a BBC Symphony Orchestra rehearsal. And so um, I'd get the Oxford Tube, that the coach from Oxford to London. Yeah, no, it worked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd, just, I'd hop on that at like five in the morning so that I could be sure that I'd get there for an 8am lesson. Yes. And so I just, I just associate the Oxford Tube so strongly now with um, both being extremely tired and hangovers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I struggle with it these days, yeah. yeah. No, but that was really great and um, was really, really lucky to have him as a teacher whilst I was there and um, yeah I went to Royal College of Music for my postgrad got my job at ENO when I had just finished my postgrad so I think I had about six months of sort of no man's land of freelancing in between finishing studying and getting my job in which 
time I was absolutely terrified. So I don't think freelancing was for me. I was yeah. very glad with the, how the timing worked out for that. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, really, that completely changed my life, having the principal flute job at ENO. I couldn't really have um, wished for it, you yeah. know. I, I knew I really, really wanted yeah. a principal flute job in London. Yeah. And I sort of decided that when I was about 12. And I think a part of me never really believed that that would happen. Yeah. You know, because you, everywhere you go, everyone says, well, you know, this is going to be really tough, yeah. don't you? Yeah. You know, and you find as a musician, people kind of, as soon as you say you want to do it, then they're already trying to lower your expectations. Yeah, exactly. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, they just tell you, like, oh, no, don't, don't do it. But it kind of puts the fire in your belly even more to yeah. want to kind of do it even more, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It could be completely demoralising, or yeah. you could just go, right, well, yeah. uh, let's see, yeah. and I'm going to have a go. So that was when I was... 23 and I'm still in that job now and absolutely love it there but I also started during the pandemic I sort of started a a hobby that has now got out of control um, (laughs) as a composer but more specifically composing for like film and media Um, so I was always really interested in composing for picture maybe we'll talk about that in a bit but I started that in so in the last kind of two and a half years and telling myself again and again it's just a hobby you're doing it for fun and um yeah that lasted for about a year and um then I started to get some offers to do it for money and kind of went maybe I should stop lying to myself and admit that this is actually just it's you know it's something that I actually want to pursue alongside my work and as a different sort of stream of my work and it's not something I ever expected to kind of go into but yeah here we are (laughs) so that's kind of like a whistle stop tour that brings you vaguely up to date with where I'm at now yeah so I mean we just talked a little bit about Oxford how did you find making the transition from you know going to a specialist music school which is very much practical music making to then going into an environment which is very academic you know it's a very kind of hot house kind of schedule isn't it you're expected to do like three essays a week or something like that isn't it it's insane yeah yeah, and I mean, there's little to no preparation for it. They yeah. don't sort of ease you in gently. Exactly, you go straight into the deep end, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you go yeah. day one and they yeah. go, right, well, we need an essay from you in yeah. three or four days. And um, as You I become before, very good at like becoming an essay-churning machine, don't you? Yeah, but I mean, I, I was terrified. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And I feel like now there's more of a focus on mental health than there ever was. I want to say 10 years ago, it's probably a bit longer than that now, yeah. which is great, yeah. because... Actually, looking back on it, it was an incredibly intense experience. Yeah. And I mean, I, I loved it and I had the best time. Yeah. But I was consistently terrified for a full three years. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think it probably depends a lot on your background. I would say that there was certainly, there are some people there who have a sense of entitlement and seem to feel very comfortable from day one. And generally, I mean, I made some of the best friends of my entire life there and that it was worth it for that alone. Just people who I absolutely love and cherish. And I can safely say that all of those were all people as well who felt completely terrified to be there. I just, I felt like... As an instrumentalist, I felt completely secure because yeah. I had had this really intensive two years of training at Chet's. And I'd done before that NYO and NCO, so kind of had those like very intense music courses as well. So as a player, I really felt, OK, I can yeah. handle this. And then you get there and it's like, I mean, even if you choose to take it as an option. Yeah, did you do performing? Yes, yeah, I did. But, and that's sort of one-eighth of your course. Exactly. You can do chamber music as well and then yeah. make it almost a quarter of yeah. your final mark. But you don't actually get any lessons. I mean, we had maybe like a sort of 
three lectures where they yeah, talked like a bit a seminar, about performance. Isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, really, that's, you know, you do a final recital. It's, re- it's not exactly what you're actually yeah. <laughs> working towards, yeah, you know, it's yeah. almost just a slight nod. Exactly. And they chuck you like 200 quid or something. And I mean, that didn't even cover three lessons no. for me because yeah, I, was going, I was going to a really good teacher, you know. Yeah, yeah so I remember just, I, I probably wrote to about 50 different people just asking for money just yeah, you know grants and trusts yeah. and alumni and you know everyone yeah so I kind of remember trying to juggle that with all the academic stuff finding it really quite stressful but also um, I think because I was so sort of anxious about being there I really had the sense like, I mean I was the first person in my family to have gone to Oxbridge I really didn't know anything about it and I had pretty much chosen the college I applied to like out of a hat and um, as I said at very very late notice and so I really felt like they could just chuck me out at any point and you don't really realise. Did you feel like a bit of an imposter? Oh total imposter syndrome yeah Yeah, I mean I feel like half of my life I've felt imposter syndrome but um, yeah and it's it's really mad because looking back um, I mean I actually did did very well in, in terms of marks and everything because I was probably just so yeah, <laughs> so sort of really, focused really that I worked well. extremely yeah, hard yeah. at it. And I sort of look back and think I could have probably worked about half as much and still been completely fine. Yeah. You know, but yeah. you, you don't really realise at the time and um, not that it's any bad thing to no. study hard and everything, but I think I probably needn't have been quite as stressed as as I was and you know I mean sometimes people get in touch now and say oh I'm not sure whether to go to conservatoire or to university you know and I mean I'd always say absolutely if you want to go to university then do because you can always come and do a postgrad but if you want to be a player you're going to always feel torn in two directions you know I mean I I had a routine of um I I just decided for myself I would do two hours of practice every single day Uh and no more and no less like on the dot and I felt any more than that, I just couldn't keep up with my work. Yeah. Any less than that, I'd never keep up with the people who I knew were studying a four-year undergrad mm-hmm. who I had to be in line with when I wanted to apply for my postgrad. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to the music faculty at 8 a.m. every day and practice before my first lectures for yeah. two hours. Yeah. And so many times I would get there and it wasn't even unlocked. Like, no. <laughs> it, was, it was just... I was going practicing Christchurch Christ yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just standing there on the doorstep of the music faculty, yeah. like, waiting for someone to come along and let me in. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, like, I, I always say to anyone who was sort of interested in doing that and exploring that, absolutely do. So it totally opened my mind to, like, yeah. every different kind of music. And I think a, a real sort of life experience as well and in a way that I would never have had otherwise. Yeah. I don't know, if you, did you feel that when you were there? Well, I mean, it's, I can't really speak much about the undergrad course, but, I mean, from what I know... There's a massive focus on like historical musicology, but it's recently been kind of broadening up into like lots of other kind of areas, like ethno, like yeah. even pop music, like music psychology. So, yeah, which I think is really, really important for an institution like Oxford that you know it is kind of starting to think more about how music can relate to kind of the wider culture yeah. that we're living in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the course I studied should have been called. Western classical music. Yeah. It shouldn't have been called music. Yeah. You know, I mean, we did one ethnomusicology module, yeah. and you know, that was pretty much it. Yeah. You know, it was so Western classical music focused. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, it did give me a very broad view of that, at least, mm-hmm. which I don't feel I'd ever had. And most of it, I thought I would never ever use yeah. until about the last couple of years, and I'm sort of suddenly going, oh yeah, I did take an orchestration class. And what about college? Because you know, you've had the chance to study with some of the top orchestral players, you know, Michael Cox, Daniel Pelthorpe, who I've talked to for this podcast. What was it like studying with them? Because 
I imagine that at college, because you have lots of different tutors, so you're getting like lots of different styles. So do you kind of feel that, you know, you've got to play in a certain way in order to impress like this teacher and this teacher? Were you able to find your own personal voice in the end? I mean, so whilst I was at RCM, I had Daniel Perthorpe, as you said, and Gareth Davis. Wonderful, amazing. So, I mean, just like fantastic. The dream team. Absolute dream team. And they both play in completely different oh, styles. Yeah, totally. Like, you couldn't really yeah. find two more different players. Yeah, I think Daniel's quite, he's a bit more like a, a bit of a showman, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, quite gestural. Yeah, and yeah. Daniel's, you know, very kind of like orchestral, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, both absolutely stunning players. But yeah, they had totally different conceptions of every everything. And of course, you'd be taking sort of orchestral excerpts to them, preparing for auditions. Yeah. And one of them would say, play it this way. Yeah. And then you'd play it that way for the next lesson you had with the other one. Yeah. And they'd say, oh, no, 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 play it this way. Yeah. And of course, no one's right or wrong. But actually, in a way, it taught me just that adaptability, which is such a valuable skill yeah. now as an orchestral player, uh-huh. just to be able to go, OK, well, I have my own version of how I'd like to play this. But if someone asks me, I can play it like that exactly, or I can play yeah. it like that. You yeah. know, just being able to go, OK. And then for the actual audition, I'd usually just pick and choose my favourite bits. Yeah. You know, what I felt suited to me from either of them. But yeah, I kind of remember having to go into lessons and thinking, OK, this is a Gareth lesson. Yeah. So <laughs> let's let's think about, you know, yeah. what he what is he listening out for? Yeah. You know, not that I was trying to game the system or anything. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I mean, just the to have such two such different de- teachers was really perfect at that stage. Yeah. I think in an, if I'd been undergrad at that point, it would have been so overwhelming. Right. Because then you're really trying to find your own okay. voice and your own way of playing. Yeah, and what about Michael as well? Yeah, well, Michael I had throughout my entire undergrad and he was just fantastic at helping me kind of build that, that voice, right. you know, and trying to find how I played. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, all the foundational stuff of just like... You know, he really has such a a view of music as a whole. You know, he's not an instrumentalist, he is a musician. Yeah. And he he just kind of made me think about why I was making each decision. Yeah. And um, that's what I always am trying to pass on to anyone who I teach now. You know, if you're doing something, you know, you can do it however you like, but you have to be able to tell me why. And if you can't explain why you're doing something, then it's usually just because that's what came out kind of easily on the instrument. Yeah, or you've been told to do it that way. Yeah, or someone's told... Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of when you get, like, fluty playing, that you yeah. can tell just follows what the flute does nicely, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, you just go into, like, default flute setting, yeah. isn't it? And yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's so easy to do. Yeah, so it kind of... I think Michael just really taught me that, like questioning everything, looking at every musical decision, thinking about how you can justify it. You know, are you doing that because of the harmony that's moving underneath? Are you doing that because of the phrase shape? You know, because you've attached a certain character to this interval or, you know, things like that. And and actually, I really, really use that, especially in contemporary music, as just like almost as an entry point. I think yeah. he really taught me never to just take the notes on the page and accept, oh, well, we just have to go through the motions and play this. Yeah. You know, it's always actually... What are we trying to achieve? And how can we make this immersive for a listener? Yeah. And you can tell that when he plays. Yeah. I mean, if you go to a concert of his, you know, that it is totally immersive. Yeah. 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 So I think I got something really, really different from all of them. But I think I was lucky the sequence which I had them in, yeah. you know, it was really right for me. Yeah. I, I feel sort of incredibly lucky with my teachers, really. Yeah. I want to come to that back to that point about adaptability because I was just thinking that because you said that all of your teachers have very different styles and you're able to 
adapt, I suppose, for the lessons. And now, kind of, as a flautist, you're able to kind of... I imagine that when you have different conductors who come in, whether that's, you know, Martin Brabins or if you have guest conductors, of course, they're all going to want very different things. So you've got to be able to kind of, I suppose, play in a way that, you know, is suited to what they want to say about the music, isn't it? Yeah. And I think because we do such different styles of music. Yes. Like, you know, we really, we cover the whole range. Yeah, yeah. And so you can be doing some Handel one day and then Burt Whistle the next. So you kind of got to just switch modes really, really quickly. I actually quite like it as well. I think I'm probably (laughs) unique in this way, but I actually quite like it when conductors are a bit demanding. Of course, as long as they're polite and nice to work with, but I actually really like it when someone comes in and and has a vision. That said, I mean, if someone tries to micromanage your solos, that is frustrating. But you know, if someone actually comes in and kind of goes, well, actually, this is how I want the orchestra to sound, and we're looking for this kind of, say, golden age cinematic string sound or yeah. something. I, you know, I, I love that. And then it, it sets you a challenge and something that you can live up to. I think um, some less experienced conductors are kind of tricked into going to an opera orchestra and going, well, I don't want to patronise you. I know that you know the repertoire. And so I know you can play bohem. And it's true, we can play bohem. And yeah, it's not great when someone tries to, again, micromanage it. But equally because we're an orchestra, well, that means that we can play bohème in a hundred different ways. You know, we've got the foundation there and then it's up to someone to put that extra character and that extra fire into it. Yeah, and so it's wonderful when people come and do that. I really like that. And it makes you actually feel that you're working with someone and that the the orchestra's not just an afterthought, that they're just sort of trying to coordinate with the stage, you know? I think that's that's really satisfying. Yeah. I'd like to ask you actually about some of the... um, I mean, I know you're off to go and do a show just after this about playing in the Coliseum, which... You know, it's a very big building. It's what four thousand seaters or something like that. Two thousand five hundred. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. But that's—it's a big hall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are there any particular challenges like playing in the Coliseum? Because I think it's when I've been there, it does have a little bit of a challenge acoustic-wise in some places. Right. Yeah. Well, you, from a playing perspective or uh, audience? from an audience perspective, at yeah. the top of, at, particularly at the top in the balcony. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, actually, it's quite nice to play in because um, because it does have acoustic and so you don't feel that your sounds like falling flat at your feet it takes a bit of adjusting because the front row woodwinds really travel and so you can play incredibly quiet in the flute seat there incredibly quietly and it will be heard right at the back of the hall and so you do i mean probably the first year i was there i got used to seeing the the palm of the hand of a lot of conductors as they just said (laughs) Less, 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 less. <laughs> yeah. Going, when can I play out? Yeah, Please, just yeah. let me sing out yeah, once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you sort of get used to actually, oh, okay, I can actually genuinely play much, much less without worrying about not being heard. Yeah. Which is quite, it's quite strange, because then, of course, I mean, you go and freelance in a symphony orchestra and really have to go, oh, no, okay, we're not in the Coliseum and my sound isn't just pinging off every single wall here. I've really got to play in a completely different way. But no, I mean, I really like playing in the Coliseum. I think it's it's nice from the pit and it definitely has sort of different pockets within the hall. Yes, exactly. Where the sound, where you get a really nice It sounds very different in different parts of the seating. I mean, the worst place to play from is on the stage. Right, it's okay. Oh, it's 
absolutely horrible. And it really depends which set is in. But there's um, my main experience of it in... I mean, we sometimes, very occasionally, will rehearse on, on stage. But my main experience of it is in production of Magic Flute, where I have to go up onto the stage and kind of be Tamino's, like, magical flute buddy, which is really fun. It's a Simon McBurney production. It's, it's just brilliant. Have you ever seen it? I haven't, no. no, it's, no. Um, but it's this really minimalist set. It's basically a platform, a really huge platform. Yeah suspended on four wires. So it can either be completely vertical and they project onto it. There's like someone live animating at the side of the stage, kind of doing like these chalk drawings. Um, There's like a live Foley uh, artist at the other side of the stage. So Uh it's really a sort of clever production in that way, like loads going on. But sometimes this platform lowers down and then you can walk up onto it. Uh And um, whilst playing this, the sort of main magic flute solo, (laughs) which usually is just a tenor on stage miming the flute. I think he just... um, decided that was a bit naff which I have to say I kind of agree <laughs> and so I went up and I would just kind of yeah. I would be the magic flute I had to walk up onto this platform and from there if you look at any side of you other than out to the seats there's just empty space because it's it's so vast behind the proscenium arch you know you've got about it's probably about six stories high and you can just feel every note you play your sound it just feels tiny, yeah. you know, yeah, you yeah. can't get it to travel anywhere. Yeah. It just feels like it's absolutely kind of coming out of the flute and just yeah, dropping just straight <laughs> to the floor. Uh-huh. And of course, I mean, the first time I did this, I was, um, the tenor was Alan Clayton, who is right. just He's a, just a powerhouse of singer, isn't He's he? fantastic. Yeah. And he became a really good mate as well. Oh, he was really, really nice wow. to work with. But yeah, he's, like you say, he, he, the sound he could produce. I just remember thinking, how are you doing that? He's, he's just at the mess, isn't he, at the yeah, moment? Yeah. 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 I was sort of thinking, he was just producing this massive sound. And I've actually got a flute. Like, I've got an instrument. Yeah. And I can't get it to travel anywhere. So it's just like standing opposite an opera singer in, in full voice. Yeah. It's just unlike anything I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, it's quite an amazing experience, isn't it? To be really? that close, like you can Remarkable. feel the vibrations, isn't it? Yeah. And it makes you really, really think about how you're using your breathing oh, and your body absolutely. as a flautist yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. You know, it yeah. to- totally made me think, you know, that actually 90% of your sound just comes from the resonance of, in, you know, inside your mouth, inside yeah. your head, inside yeah. your chest, uh-huh. that whole thing. You know, it's why even if you play on student instrument or something you still sound like you you know whatever flute you play yeah. I've got totally sidetracked from the question you originally asked me <laughs> um, no no I think I think um, I can't remember what we were talking about oh yeah playing on the, in the Colosseum that was oh, it yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah um, anyway that's a really open set but when there's you know a set that's more like a traditional room or something and yeah. it, uh, especially if it's got kind of reflective sur- s- surfaces I think the, the singers really really like, <laughs> like that yes. and it's nice for us as well because we can actually hear them better yeah because it can be a challenge from the pit to actually hear what's going on on the stage. Mm-hmm. I think probably one of the main learning curves of being in an opera orchestra was actually, okay, well, I, I've listened to this and I know that, I've, that I'm with the soprano on this line and in the zits, it was perfectly together. Yes. And now they're on the stage and yeah. I can't hear a single thing they're doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, it's a totally, um, it, it took a while to kind of, to learn that mm-hmm. and, and work out how to make that work. So I wanted to ask you actually, as a section leader, I mean, what does it take to be a good section leader? Because I imagine that, you know, it's not just about being a fantastic musician. I imagine it's also about being a good colleague as well. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. 
You're probably um, better asking a second or a third player right. of what makes a good okay. section leader, because of course I've only worked with me as a section oh, leader. Okay. <laughs> just you. Um, well, because in a flute section, yeah. I really didn't freelance for very long at all, and now as a principal player, everywhere I go, I'm the section leader. Yeah. So I'd, I, all I can say is what I hope is a good section leader. But um, yeah, I think you're completely right about being a good colleague. I would say that I see my job primarily as making sure that the other players in my section feel comfortable. And that's like musically and just generally, you know. So musically, I think it takes a certain decisiveness so that they don't ever feel like they're questioning where they're supposed to put something or play. Mm -hmm. And I find I, I play really differently actually depending on who's there on a particular day. You know, if I know I've got someone who's never done this particular opera before, you know, a guest coming in who's maybe not had that many rehearsals, then I'm way more demonstrative than I ever would be if I'm sitting next to Katie, who's yeah. our colleague in the ENO, and um, wonderful, wonderful player. And I know that she knows exactly how all these operas go and yeah. doesn't necessarily need me to be waving about as much. <laughs> so I think partly just... Um, kind of being decisive in how you play and decisive in how you lead the section sound as well. Yeah. I really like the section to kind of be blended, but as a principal, you you ultimately have to decide the sound for the section, you know? And in the few times I have played as a second or third player, it's really, really hard if there's someone on principal who perhaps isn't quite sure what they're aiming for, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, if I'm... Um, and when I'm leaving, leading a section, I'm always just sort of trying to make it really, really clear that, you know, the kind of sound that we're producing and where I want everything to be, you know, so people don't have to be questioning that. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think ultimately people who, who feel comfortable play much, much better. Definitely, because the last thing you want is just to be scared around your colleagues and, like, yeah. ultimately you all want to make good music at the end of the day. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And... I really think that playing down the line, you know, whether it's second or piccolo, it's a far harder skill than playing principal, really. Oh, for sure. As a principal player, you make a lot of the decisions, but um, then whatever you do kind of is just taken yeah. as correct. And so, the, you know, with the kind of hierarchy of the section, whereas actually as a second player, then you've got to kind of always be trying to work out what the person next to you wants and yes. what they're doing and yeah. adapting to them. You know, I mean, I am very, very lucky to play with a lovely section who I feel completely confident in. And so really, I feel like my attention is completely free to then be aware of the rest of the orchestra. So actually, I don't have to think too much at all about what the rest of my section are doing the majority of the time, as long as I'm being clear for them. And so I can really then be thinking about how the blend of the whole woodwind section is, you know, if I'm with the first violins, what the bass is doing, you know, all of that stuff. So, yeah, kind of frees up my attention. Yeah, wonderful. I was going to say, actually, I actually saw your videos that you did for Principal Chairs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed them because because you actually perform the extracts like you kind of just really give, you give it like, yeah and I absolutely love that oh, because God. I think like there's some people you know they come to the orchestras they just sit there they just like just play it it's like a bit of a job but you actually you know you just put a bit of like emotion and you just like you just really went for it yeah <laughs> oh thanks so much <laughs> yeah well I think because they were all opera excerpts yes. that I did for that yes. you know I thought it would be sort of appropriate. And I think that's part of the reason that I really, really love to play opera is because you are always trying to communicate a character. Yeah. And so I I sort of feel all of those solos, I think there was, I mean, Salome, which I think is the best flute solo we ever get to play. It's just brilliant. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, it's so it's so seductive. It's almost raunchy. Yeah, like it's yeah. you know, you're right in the low register and just the sort of turns of phrase and everything. I think you know, you almost have to like embody a character when you're doing it. And I honestly, I mean, I don't know how I look when I play and um, I honestly, probably best I don't think too much about <laughs> it. But um, I don't think I could play them without performing them. Yeah. And, you know, when people now come and play me excerpts for auditions and stuff, you know, students come for lessons, then often they're used to playing it in their practice room. Yeah. And you see them sort of standing stock still and just going through what they've written on their music and trying to perform it correctly. And... Um, I think that's not what performing is mm. you know I mean mm. people some people prefer to move more than others but yes. I think you've got to immerse yourself in it somehow sure, sure. and um, for me that is kind of almost like a whole body experience yeah, I see that. yeah I've just got to kind of get completely into it yeah, and yeah. and be really like hearing everything else that's going on at the same time yeah, yeah. it's such a bizarre thing really that we do so much of playing these solos on our own yeah and also like in a pit where no one can see you as well. Yeah, so. yeah you could totally not yeah, perform. Yeah. I just think that would make it so hard for me. I really, really struggle to kind of get into that mindset without actually performing. Yeah. And, and even when I practice, I mean, I used to have terrible, terrible practice technique. Yeah. And now I think I've honed it a lot more. Okay. And so I don't practice you know, hours and hours and hours no. every day. I don't really have the time anymore. No, no. But what I do, I'm really, really focused. And when I'm practicing something for a performance, I make sure to practice it in a, in a performing style. Mm -hmm. You know, I perform it even in my living room yes, at home. Exactly. Because otherwise it just feels completely different. You come to do it and of course you'll have the added element of nerves. But if you've never actually got used to your performance version of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to do kind of safe practice room versions of Definitely. things. And you think, oh, it'll sort of all come together when I'm actually in situ. And yeah. in actual fact, what happens when you're playing it with the orchestra is you've got 20 other things to worry about. Yeah. And suddenly you're going at someone else's tempo and having to breathe at the speed that they give you. And, you know, and you're having to listen out for other things. And yeah, so I, I really try and force myself now to kind of get into that mindset if I am practicing a part, you know, mm -hmm. even for orchestral parts. Yeah, and, and also I think that, you know, the singers have literally spent, you know, however many years it is preparing for these roles, they're literally just giving it everything on stage. I think it's only right as, you know, orchestral musicians that you're there to serve the story, that you've just got to, you know, give it something as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, we can't let them have all the limelight, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like your, um, your example, like when you were on stage in Magic Flute, for example. Yeah, right? precisely, kind of moments like that. It's like, well, what you're doing is storytelling uh -huh. and you owe it to your audience to tell the story yeah. and everyone has their own way of doing that. But um, yeah, for me, I, I could never separate that from that kind of physical sense of performing yeah. something. You know, I would do the same if I was in a symphony orchestra and on stage as uh -huh. well. And I just find it kind of like serves the emotion of it a bit more if I let myself get into that character yeah. and that emotion and whatever I'm trying to portray. Just kind of surrender yourself to it. Yeah, know? yeah, amazing. Well, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about your composing. So how did this come about? You said that it was um, a bit of a hobby for you at first, but now you said it's become something of a bit of a, a side project for you. Was this during the lockdown that you discovered your your passion for composing or did you do a bit of composing at uni or school? No, I never did really, apart from those few things that you have to do for like your GCSE and yeah. A-level compositions. Yeah. So I probably did four compositions in total yeah. uh, in my whole life until a couple of years ago and actually kind of always felt very discouraged by the whole thing. Really, it was before the pandemic, though pandemic was actually when I finally had time to do it. Yeah. Um, 
I just started to sort of get this idea into my head of having a go at it because, well, there was sort of something, something happened, which is one of those completely throwaway moments that no one would have even known happened, but it completely changed my entire outlook on everything, which was I was on my way to a gig with a very nice British orchestra who will remain nameless sure. <laughs> and um, with two other players yeah. both men and one of them was we were just in the car long drive uh-huh. uh, one of them was talking about the fact that he composed and you know I was, I was we were all chatting and I was showing a lot of interest because I did find it interesting kind of going oh wow you know, tell me more and you know we are chatting about it and um, I think I know where this is and going. then he goes to the other guy in the car oh so do you compose and he goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I dabble and I dip yeah. a toe and all of this. And they're chatting away about it. I'm kind of sitting there and, you know, I had been an active part of this conversation, yeah. showing a lot of interest. Yeah. Yeah. And just the question never came to me and they just completely shut me out of it. Like, I just felt completely excluded. And, um, I mean, they're both really, really nice people and yeah. it really wasn't yeah. intentional at no, all. No, no. They won't have even known it happened. And I don't think they would have, like, consciously realised anything. But it did just make me think they, they just had no idea whatsoever that it might have been something I was interested in. And really, it just made me think about myself. And, well, why have I never shown an interest? You know, if they had asked me at that point, oh, well, do you compose? I'd have had to honestly say no. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why is that? Why have I always shut that off as an option for myself? Yeah. And I really think it's a lack of role models thing. You know, because I couldn't have been any more immersed in music growing up than I was. I was obsessed. Yeah. And, you know, and I was performing at a very, very high level from quite an early age. And I was doing all the national orchestras and everything. And I sort of think, and yet I still didn't ever feel like it was a path that was open to me. I still didn't ever have a teacher that went, why don't you try it? And of course, it's not other people's responsibility to plan that for you. But um, I do notice that like a lot of my male colleagues definitely have gone down that path or even peers at student level were more encouraged I felt that I can only speak to my own experience and I hope that that's not everyone's experience of it but yeah I didn't feel that there were a lot of role models and so I never really never considered that it could be something I could do and I think that conversation that we had in the car and sort of feeling totally blocked out of it and ignored really just made me think well why don't I just actually do it if they can do it they you know there's no particular reason that I couldn't. And I think it just kind of opened up almost like a door that had been completely locked shut in my mind of like, no, I'm a player, I'm a performer, composing's for other people, and it's something that you have to study if you want to do it. Yeah. And that's actually not the case. <laughs> you know, I mean, certainly having a really full knowledge of music is going to assist you if you want to compose but really I mean anyone can it's literally just putting some notes together on paper it doesn't mean it's going to be good and that's not to do down study and composition which I think is a really really important thing as well but yeah I I just felt like it was completely a a closed off route and actually it was really more of a mental block so I sort of started to think oh why don't I just give that a go and and see if it's something that's open to me but I have to say, again, even as a classical musician, completely immersed in that world, classical composition felt too intimidating to me. I think part of it is probably having been on the other side of a lot of orchestral rehearsals where you're playing new commissions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people can be quite scathing yes. about things. And that's even when you're doing things by well-known, you know, by famous big composers, yeah. by probably the best composers that were, who would be considered the best living, you know, Western classical composers. 
and you'll be playing a new piece and everyone in the break is going, what is this? <laughs> Some things that I won't say. But, um, <laughs> and I think I just felt like I don't want to put myself on the other side of that. Yeah. And I felt that kind of avant-garde classical composition felt... I had that sort of anxiety of knowing too much in that I felt having studied an academic music degree and having kind of delved into the more sort of musicology side a little yes. bit, I just didn't know where to go with that. And so for me, actually, film composing was just kind of there as this thing that it's like, oh, you're allowed to do that. And you don't have to be writing your first symphony, you know? Yeah. You're allowed to actually just view a film yeah. and think, how could I enhance this and create some atmosphere and basically have some fun making interesting sounds and that just felt so much more accessible to me and I'm still feeling really passionate about that at the moment I don't know if I'll branch out from that one day and what I do now does vary a little bit but yeah in so in the lockdown in the first lockdown it took me about six weeks of the first lockdown of telling myself I had terribly pressing things to do around the house <laughs> to actually work up the courage to just sit at my computer and go come on you've downloaded Logic Pro and you've got your manuscript and there's no more putting this off. You have nothing to do. Work is not starting again. Just sit down and do something. Yeah, just give it a go. Yeah, but again, I mean, as you probably gather by now, I was like feeling quite anxious about it. And I sort of had this, this thing in my head telling me, well, if I write something, because I'm already a musician, it has to be good. You know, because I've kind of, I've got myself a reputation as a flautist. I don't want to then do something knowing that it's not good and felt very self-effacing about the whole thing. And so I just set myself a challenge rather than trying to write something and make it the best thing I could possibly write. I had this book, which is called Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls. Have you ever oh, heard yes. of it? Yes, I yeah. have. Yeah, my sister's got it actually. Yeah. yeah, and it's literally children's stories. It's a beautiful book and um, each page tells the story of a different exceptional yeah. woman and it's really varied all sorts of people in there and um, from all sorts of periods of history as well and different disciplines and everything and um, each page is illustrated by a different artist and they're just absolutely beautiful illustrations as well I'd highly recommend checking that out and um, I had this on my shelf and so I just opened the book to a random page I said today I am going to write a piece about this person and I'm just going to give myself one day, and at the end of the day, that's it. And um, I think the first one I did was Jane Goodall, <laughs> and then Harriet Tubman, and then, you know, I, I just sort of did all different sort of types of historical figures or current figures, some good, some not so great as well, and um, just tried to write a different piece every single day. I did, I think I've probably got about 40 of them somewhere, and... Uh, each time I would just give myself one day and just see what I could do. And it was almost like my way of training myself up, partly in the software because I'd never composed with a door before. So that's composing directly yeah. into the computer. Digital audio workstation. Yeah. And partly just kind of getting to grips with how to organise my ideas and how to create different moods. And some of it was almost more towards pop production. Yes. Uh, some of it was more classical composition and kind of everything in between. Yeah. Sometimes I record my own voice and the flute as well, but yeah. most of the time I would just be working with software instruments. Yeah, and that's just what sort of started me. It just like helped me get past that barrier. And I still um, sort of stand by that. If I get into a point where I've got writer's block about something, of just limiting your, your yeah. options. It's one of those things that I should have just released them straight away. But now I'm sort of two and a half or so years into composing. Yeah. 
And of course, now I know so much now that I didn't know then that I can't quite bear myself to publish them all because I'm, I'm sort of even just looking at them and thinking, oh, but the mix is clipping and I didn't even EQ that and, you know, all this sort of technical stuff. But I have got a few around and about on my Instagram and stuff. And um, I will one day work up the courage to just dump them all on SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I just took it from there and um, kind of found things to score. Uh, did a lot of like rescores of short films yeah. and everything. Scored a an animated short with my which I made with my partner. Oh, okay. um, he's an animator. That's oh, convenient. Right. Yeah. And a concept artist and a stand-up comedian as well. Um, man of many talents. And his lockdown project was that he hand animated a fan film, oh. a Batman <laughs> fan film called Batman Broken Promise, which is on YouTube. Well, I saw that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, it's very good. So, yeah. um, so he wrote, directed, animated this thing. Absolutely insane because it's 15 minutes long, which considering that animation studios often take about a week to animate five seconds. He just did it all by hand, hand drawn, and it's just a remarkable feat that. But anyway, he of course asked me whether I'd score it, which I did earlier this year. And uh, that was really, really a lot of fun. Yeah, so now I actually work as a composer for a Berlin-based company called Orchestral Tools. And they're a sample library company focused on orchestral instruments, but also going more into production as well, and some really interesting new stuff. And um, I make well, I compose for them, I make content for them as well, and we've got another few interesting projects which I can't say course, too much yeah. about, no, um, but yeah, um, stuff I'm really excited about, and um, you'll find a lot of me on their Instagram as well. So that's just something I never ever thought I'd be doing. It just kind of sprung very, very naturally. I was like making short videos, mostly Instagram reels, just kind of about the things I was writing, mostly because I sort of only joined Instagram about a year and a half ago because I was in all the lockdowns and everything and I was composing, but I was feeling very, very isolated and also feeling slightly pitying for my poor family and my partner who were the only people who were ever listening to my compositions <laughs> and I sort of thought maybe I should spread this out a little bit more so uh, <laughs> they're not subjected to it on a daily basis and so I joined Instagram and there's a really really supportive composer community on there and also loads and loads of female composers or composers from other underrepresented groups and that's really really been amazing just to be able to meet other people who also feel like they're not represented, especially in film composition. And I mean, statistically looking at it, it still is really, really majority white men and quite intimidating. But when you're actually kind of talking to other people who are trying to also get into this at the same time as you, I think we all just really help each other and we share you know tips we share jobs we share anything we can you know to try and support we share each other's content and um you know it's been really really nice to just have that kind of it almost feels like if i was studying somewhere having a, a community but it's all online so anyway i started making um short videos just kind of when i started to get a little bit of work as a composer about the things i was doing and kind of track breakdown so talking about orchestration and composing techniques and stuff like that yeah and that just like took off incredibly quickly in a way that I really never expected nor intended whatsoever but I'm really glad it did and orchestral tools just got in touch with me kind of they sent me some free libraries and said oh you know if you fancy posting about this that would be great but no worries if not and I I just made a few reels about them. I think at the time I was scoring uh, Batman Broken Promise, so I sort of did one of how I composed like a superhero theme, how I composed a supervillain theme, how I, you know, those sort of things. Just like quick, really quick rundowns of taking apart some tracks. 
And then they asked for a meeting with me and offered me a job, which was totally out of the blue. And I think, yeah, still quite surprised that that happened. So the last year has been really, really crazy because yeah. I still have my full-time job at e yeah. I do quite a lot of freelancing as a flautist and yeah. now I have a part-time job as a composer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm doing some freelance stuff as composer as well, working with animation company in LA at the yeah. moment. Hopefully there'll be an animated short in the next sort of six months yeah. or so Ooh, that I'll be able to share. I'm wow. very excited about that. And um, yeah, just trying to keep a lot of plates spinning at the moment. <laughs> but it's really exciting. How do you do it? What is the secret to <laughs> managing your time? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, it's that I don't manage my time okay. and just end up extremely tired. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm on a mission at the moment to try and actually um, manage my schedule in such a way that I, I'm actually kind of looking at it, it looks like a game of Tetris because almost like every hour is mapped out with what I'm doing and I'm trying really, really hard to just do exactly what I've planned and no more yeah. because I've got the sort of personality where I want things to be perfect yeah. and so I you can just yeah, yeah I mean absolutely yeah. and it's taken me a long way it's but hard, it can it? also yeah. lead to complete burnout yeah. and um, so I'm trying to get around that at the moment yeah. and um, yeah. not completely fall into that trap yeah so efficiency <laughs> efficiency is key for me right now and I don't know and just I'm just trying to remind myself every day that every single thing I'm doing even though I am busy, is because I want to be doing it. And I look at every, every different aspect of my work and I think, oh, well, I couldn't give that up. And I couldn't give that up. And just what a privileged position to be in. I, I just feel really, really lucky. And um, even when I'm really tired, I try and remind myself that I have actually chosen all of this, you know? And um, no one's actually holding a gun to my head and saying, please, do all these things. So I'm, I'm trying to do that and be realistic about how long things are actually taking me and still find time to actually be creative within that because I think the times when I'm not creative are when I feel like I've got an endless to-do list sitting in front of me and I've got to execute those tasks as quickly as possible you know so I kind of I feel like I'm half freelance and half not at the moment in that I've got some sort of flexibility in my work and some complete lack of flexibility in other work and so for my like freelance side I'm at least trying to give myself the time to actually experiment with it still you know not to just get to that stage where I'm trying to churn things out yeah and luckily because I work with sample libraries then it's like every week or two something new arrives on my doorstep and I, I go oh right okay so this week I'm working entirely with a muted string library and next week I'm working entirely with a ukulele and then the week after that I'll work with some massive taiko drums and you know it's just like something completely different every time so I just sort of sit down and go okay well hmm, what can I do with a vibraphone and try and work something out and it's it's kind of a it is a very like fun and creative thing I've just got to never lose sight of that even when I'm feeling up against it with not deadlines as such but my own personal deadlines 